Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I'm also the Public Relations Officer of the United National Congress, the official opposition party in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Tonight, Today, my guest is Bhaskar Sankara, author of the book The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics, in an Era of Extreme Inequality, published by Basic Books in the U.S. and Verso in the U.K. in 2019. Welcome, Bhaskar. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I really look forward to it. We like to start off our interviews by asking our authors, our guests, uh, you know, if you could just let our audience know a little bit about your background and particularly in relation to the subject of your book. Yeah, well, I grew up in the New York area. Um, my parents actually immigrated from, uh, from Trinidad um, a year or so before I was born. Uh, my mom's from a um, Trinidadian family. My dad uh, is actually from from India, and he came to Trinidad uh, for work in the 1980s, where he met my my mom, you know, whose whose family had been there since the 1800s, and uh, you know, which is an unusual thing. It's kind of like when I when I have to explain it to friends, I just tell them it's like someone from Paris or Marseille or something moving to Montreal and marrying into a French Canadian family. Um, but, um, uh, but when they first came to the U S uh, my family background, we had you know five kids. Uh, my dad was just getting kind of re-credentialized, which was a long process and never really um, ended for him. You know, he ended up, um, working in hospital administration in the in the US. My mom did mostly hourly work as a you know telemarketer and, and, and other other odd jobs. You know, it was definitely not, you know, an affluent background, but it was a, a comfortable enough background that I saw the ways in which my life outcomes were really the product of not just the hard work of my family, which of course is very important but also public institutions. You know, I went to a public school. I spent time in a public library. I went to free after-school activities. And I was given more opportunities than at least some of my older siblings um, who didn't go to uh, college and who uh, just by virtue of of age and and whatever else had different um, life outcomes. And it was very, uh, you know, clear to me that the leveling force was state services. Um, So early on, I would say I developed a social democratic sensibility of believing in the welfare state as a potential equalizer. Um, Over time, I developed maybe as young as 14, 15 years old, a um, interest in Marxism intellectually, an interest in, in history, an interest in just the idea that those types of ordinary people who produce the great wealth of the society deserve more of a stake in their their own societies. They de- de- deserve more um, democratic voice, but they also uh, deserve more of the fruits of their own labor. And I, I would say that's kind of the somewhat pragmatic origins for my uh, socialist politics. Let, let me just ask you a little question there. How 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 did a 14, 15-year-old Indian Trini immigrant in New York uh, become a Marxist? <laughs> uh, that, it's, it's not usually the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, it was definitely public libraries played a role. Okay. Um, you know, the, New York does have a tradition of a lot of red diaper babies. There was, it used to be a hub of a lot of communist and socialist thought, obviously. Mm-hmm like that in the early 2000s 
Um, but there were a lot of the books were still there. Um, and I think especially in the Jewish community in New York and, and, and kind of other um, working class communities, there was this this tradition. Um, yeah, this won't help a lot, but hopefully will a little. Um, let me just pick up from, from there. Um, but through those library donations, you know, I think a lot of that legacy lived lived on. And uh, I was just intellectually interested in in um, in history, and that drew me close to you know, Marxists. Marxists were some of the greatest historians of the twentieth century. Eric Hobsbawm and others—they were all all Marxists. And I think what Marxism gave me was a way to understand certain key facts of the world. You know why? Um, how can we understand the distribution of power and wealth in a in a society the pace of technological change uh, why we live in societies in which so much of our life outcomes are just the accidents of birth and I think a lot of those big questions kind of a, a, appealed to me and also this was there obviously you know 2003 2004 when uh, the anti-war movement was just growing there was a lot of opposition to the US war in in Afghanistan and, and of course, the invasion of Iraq. Um, so it was definitely a moment where if you were politically engaged, if you were interesting, if you were someone uh, who was interested in the world, uh, especially if you had a family background that was, that was um, international, um, you know, you were going to be drawn to the left. Um, the right did not have a hold on, on the imagination of, of young people in the, the U.S. And I think I was no different. Right, right. Um, I can you just you know give a little bit about your background with uh, the Jacobin and the Democratic Socialists of America as well, because I, I think that's probably pretty relevant to the book as well. Yeah, I um, joined the Democratic Socialists of America when I was just seventeen years old, um, my, and the Democratic Socialists of America is a organization in the U.S. that was founded in the 1980s, but has roots all the way back to the original Socialist Party of America, which was founded in the late 1890s in the U.S. Um, and it really had a tradition of being opposed to authoritarian manifestations of socialism, but really for trying to build some sort of organic base in the U.S. for egalitarian politics. Um, Often this meant working within the left wing of the uh, Democratic Party and running candidates. But it was a very small organization when I joined it, only 5,000 or so people. In recent years, following the two Bernie Sanders campaigns and following, obviously, the rise of Donald Trump and some of the you know, insanity in American politics, uh, a lot more people flocked to the organization. Now it has around 100,000 members. And um, these members... Um, yeah are disproportionately young, uh, disproportionately the product of, of this, this new generation, but I think are committed to running candidates through uh, the Democratic uh, Party and have, do have a base of, of uh, elected officials. Obviously, the most prominent um, young one is Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I, I'm the Jacobin uh, magazine. Um, Jacobin, I founded when I was um, a undergraduate at George Washington University, um, maybe between my sophomore and junior years at school. Um, essentially, I had my politics. I was involved in, in activism through the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, it seemed to me that we were in a moment back then in you know, 2010 of kind of a, a lull for for left and, and progressive politics. I mean, this is the dark days uh, kind of uh, for the far left. You know, the Bush administration was, was out of there. We had the election of Obama, but there was really uh, not a lot of, um, of hope. Um, and it seemed like the project of socialism was a project rooted in the past. Um, it stank of failure and of the defeats of, of previous generations. Uh, so I felt it was important to create a publication that could reach a much wider base outside of the existing left and communicate socialist ideas in a plain spoken, um, interesting way. Um, 
are um, uh, efforts at kind of building a mainstream appeal were really boosted by uh, our creative director, uh, Rumike Forbes, um, who actually also has a West Indian background. He was born in Jamaica, uh, but grew up in New York. And, you know, I think our idea was we wanted a publication that looked and presented um, seriously, like a mainstream publication that was uh, visually interesting, that was, you know, high, high quality. And we would use that as an ambassador for socialist um, ideas. Okay, that's it. So, so would you say that that uh, the Socialist Manifesto is, you know, very much sort of an extension of of you know that work um, with the Democratic Socialists of America and and the Jacobin, or or do you see it as something separate? Yeah, I think it definitely was an extension of that work, and I think my primary inspiration for writing the book would be to try to write something for a different moment, a different generation, but in a similar spirit the types of books that Michael Harrington, the founder of the Democratic Socialist America, would write, books like Socialism, Past and Future, that um, communicated to a much wider audience than the existing left, but was able to share the moral vision, the worldview, and some of the history, both dark and, um, and positive accomplishments of socialism in the past. So particularly, I wanted to grapple with the experience of European social democracy and power and other movements across the world um, that might have fell short of the goal of going beyond capitalism, but did manage to improve the lives of, of millions of people. So sometimes when we think about socialism, we think about socialist parties, we just think about um, the Soviet Union, or, or we think about the, these these countries that people don't generally have positive associations with. Um, but I wanted to make clear that this is a, a big, varied um, tradition. And uh, it's a tradition with a past and as a tradition with present adherents that are organizing every day for a more equal and just world. And also it's a vision that hopefully has a, has a long future. Okay. Right. So let's kind of break down uh, the title, um, you know, like, like, like a good academic, right? So the socialist manifesto, the case for radical politics in an era of extreme inequality. So I guess the main concepts there are like, Socialist manifesto, what you mean by socialism, and, and I suppose even what you mean by a manifesto, what you mean by radical politics, and, and, and this era of extreme inequality. So let, let's try to unpack it, you know, step by step. Yeah, definitely. Well, to begin with, I should say that um, my initial title was called Socialism in Our Time, but the publishers had a much better idea of a title that would sell. So with the Socialist Manifesto. But I do think it's especially, uh, you know, it's not particularly a manifesto, but I do think it's important to have a definition of, of, of socialism. So my vision of socialism, socialism is a uh, movement to give ordinary people more power over their, um, their day-to-day lives. It's a movement to make sure that uh, at the very least, the basics of life are guaranteed to people as rights um, so that you don't have situations that we just completely take granted to today that somebody born in one area to one set of parents are going to have radically different life, life outcomes as to you know someone else. You know, I, I don't think we're all equal in our talents and abilities, of course, but I think that we need a society in which ordinary people can um, can reach their potentials and can at least be guaranteed of a of a good life, um, and, and you you are you are definitely a Marxist. Am I right? Or you, you, it, it, it's not like a non-Marxist socialism. It, it is a Marxist socialism. Am, am I correct? In yes, yes. I mean, that? Yeah. Marxism to me is a framework, uh, a way in which to analyze the world um, that I think foregrounds questions of class. Uh, questions of class struggle, questions of, of ownership, of production, and these other, um, you know, very economic, um, you know, questions. Um, and I think that's that's a worldview, a way in which we say, uh, we use a Marxist framework in order to better understand the world. Um, if I ever think that the framework isn't good for understanding the world, I'd be more than happy to not be a Marxist. To be a socialist, I think, 
uh, for me at least, is a moral and ethical stance. It's a stance of being an egalitarian, a stance that believes that ordinary people have untapped capabilities, that they're not being uh, taken advantage of, that that you know CEOs shouldn't earn um, 200 times more than people who um, who work every day and try to provide for their families, that people shouldn't just be um, treated as mere, as mere commodities and, 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 and the profit-making of others. Um, I, I think that's a, that's a moral stance, right? So I feel very comfortable. And, you know, I think I'll be a socialist forever. Um, Marxism for me is a, is a framework. And it's also just that. It's not dogma. You know, I think we have to constantly look at the world, look at reality, and, and adjust our, our, our understandings uh, like true social sciences, you know, in, in a very empirical way, uh, not just recite. Um, and Marx himself is always developing his own views in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so when you speak of of radical politics, I know in your book you speak of uh, I'm I'm trying to remember the exact phrase it was, but basically like like class class based um, movements. Is, is is that what specifically you mean by radical politics, or is it something else? I think fundamentally movements will take on different um, uh, different forms in different environments. So if you're in a country that's colonized, it's oppressed by another country, your movement might take the form of having uh, national questions be, um, be at the forefront. If you're in a racist regime like apartheid in South Africa, you know, your movement might take a, a form that that, of course, is about national liberation, but might foreground certain questions of institutional um, racisms and the need and how we create a system that, that adjusts it. Um, but fundamentally, I think that today in most parts of the world, uh, the class question is, is the preeminent one. So Martin Luther King had a great quote in the 1960s, and he said, uh, we're not just fighting to integrate the lunch counter. We want to make sure that everybody can afford to buy hamburger at that counter. And I think we've made in the U.S. tremendous progress at getting rid of um, structural racism, getting rid of uh, things like like Jim Crow, uh, getting uh, rid of rid of all that. But we haven't made a lot of progress in making sure that we are winning our economic battle so that people locked at the bottom of the labor market are able to uh, live with dignity and and hopefully have a path to um, to to live happy and, and, and productive lives and, and 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 feel like they're part of a community committed to the equal moral worth of each citizen now, when when you in the title when, when you speak about you know you're making a case for radical politics, is it that uh, you are opposing it? This is the sense I get, and you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong. Um, that you're, you're basically making a case for confrontational politics as opposed to reformist politics. Am I understanding you correctly? So I think even reformist politics requires some degree of of confrontation, right? So. I'll give an example. Let's actually, let's use Trinidad as an example. Let's say you have a left government or any type of center-left government even that came to power in Trinidad. And that government did not have very radical ambitions. They just wanted to create kind of a functioning development state, right? They wanted to create an environment where people were investing in Trinidad and productive businesses were able to expand, but that you know, the wealth that was being created, enough of it was taken and used to build, um, uh, ex- expand in the right sectors that were creating high wage jobs. And um, you were able to build some type of a functioning safety net, right? So people had access to good funded schools and roads and others, all sorts of infrastructure, both physical infrastructure and social infrastructure. Well, it's one thing to say, okay, we could achieve this through a partnership with business. And yes, to some degree, sure, if you're administrating a state, you need profitable businesses to have something to tax, right? You know, you can't, uh, 100% tax rate of zero is zero, right? But fundamentally, if you're trying to build this type of state, you need to um, to control um, 
investment decisions and patterns because you you might say okay you're doing the short-term thing um you're 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 making enough money doing the short-term thing but we really want you to invest in this thing that's better for the country long term and will create more uh higher value added um you know uh, production in the, in the country, right? And that, that just requires a state willing to use the, the, the carrot and the stick, right? The stick of being able to make investment priorities and the carrot of, you know, sometimes subsidizing or making the, you know, um, all sorts of things to incentivize people to, to invest and grow, grow businesses. So the question is like, how you do, how do you do that? Right. You need a strong state, but also you need a base of popular support. Um, and that base of popular support will come from working class people if you're on the left, right? Because because you have unions, you have ordinary people that that will provide your legitimacy as a government, will provide your parliamentary majorities. Um, so you, we saw in successful examples of of social democratic states, extremely strong unions uh, pushing um, centralized wage agreements, um, extremely strong social democratic parties that those unions backed. And you saw them able to really transform um, the patterns of capitalist development itself. So was Sweden a revolutionary state in the 20th century? You know, absolutely not. It was a a reformist state by any by any definition, but it still required that that um, that mechanism, that momentum of class struggle and organization. So, so would you? So would you um, uh, categorize um, the you know the Swedish politics then as as not radical, or or is that the type of, or does that fall under the rubric of radical politics that you're making a case for in your book? I think that what Sweden did was they created a society in which a lot of the cultural and economic necessities, food, housing, quality education, healthcare, childcare, um, were provided or guaranteed or, or close to it for most, most people. You know, it was a good society. But what happened was because they left the ultimate power, the power to invest or not invest, the power to hire or not hire in the hands of private capitalists, as soon as the world environment changed, as soon as you had globalization, you had um, uh, all sorts of contingent things like the OPEC, um, but, you know, oil shock in the 70s and, and whatever else, as soon as the system stopped working or as soon as the capitalists felt like they they uh, weren't making enough enough money in Sweden, or they had to deal with these strong unions and these expensive wages or whatever else. Um, they just decided not to invest until conditions changed, right? So what I'm suggesting is um, social democratic countries showed the road to a potentially deeper socialism. We could imagine maybe moving towards a system where you still have a competitive market, but you have, um, instead of private owners of large businesses, you have um, worker cooperatives um, in, in some way or, or, or a different sort of step beyond social democracy into something like socialism. But I do think the road to a democratic socialism beyond capitalism does go through social democracy. You know, if you're unable to build a strong welfare state and, and create a functioning social democracy, like how in the world are you going to do the old Marxist dream of seizing the uh, means of production? Right, and 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 that that certainly seems to be uh, your your vision of socialism that that it, it does have to do with the means of production. As opposed, there are many other socialists who've kind of dropped that um, that goal, and and but but it seems uh, from what from what I understand from from looking at your book that that really that that. That old, uh, well, I when I say old, I don't mean in a disparaging no, no, no. way. That classic, that that classic Marxist uh, aim is is something um, you you are committed to. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Right, right, good. And and when I um, and and just just finally, uh, the era of extreme e- inequality. Uh, so it, would I be right in you thinking of this as a kind of, uh, you know, neoliberal 
era, let's say from the 90s, that culminated in the um, Great Recession and and so forth? Or is it something else you're you're thinking of in terms of the socialism? Yeah, yeah, I think it's safe to say that we are in a in a second kind of gilded age um, here, where um, again people are crushed by low wages, by high rent, uh, by again the feeling that they're working harder than ever, but they they're not not keeping keeping uh, pace, and they can't guarantee their children are going to have better life outcomes than than they've they've had. So. Um, you know, is the inequality extreme in 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 every country in the same exact way? Like, no, every country is different. But in general, um, in general, capitalism is a obviously incredibly productive system. It's created a lot of wealth, but it's created the most unequal era in in world world history, and it's only gotten more extreme as unions have gotten weaker, as democratic socialist movements have gotten weaker, as um, state's willingness to um, put put certain controls or to shape um, you know capital um, has 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 waned you know we lived in a world where there seemed to be many different paths of development for for newly independent states um, and states pick their own and choose their own future and and some of them worked some of them didn't but there there seemed to be a lot of different different uh, possibilities. Um, now it seems like everybody's given the same prescription, which is, you know, keep your wages low, uh, keep your taxes low, keep keep out regulations, keep unions weak. And that's the only way in which you're going to get the investment you need for your country to survive. And I think, I think in fact, uh, there is a, a, a different model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, essentially your, your book is, is kind of, a case for um, building socialism in America, c- correct? Yeah, well, I think my focus is, let's say my focus is largely on the advanced capitalist world, right? As far as, um, you know, so not just America, but the UK and other, other you know, countries. Um, so is the model for change or is uh, different? I think in, in a lot of the global South, I think, you know, absolutely the, the some, certain parts of the model for change are, um, are different, but I think it's a little bit beyond, beyond the U S. Right. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, all right. And so could, I mean, you, you give a, uh, yeah, the, the bulk of the book really, you know, gives a, a, a broad, history of, of socialism and, and, and you include, um, you know, third world socialism, Scandinavian socialism, Soviet communism, etc. And, and, and you, uh, you know, you integrate it all, which I, I think is um, a, a very uh, interesting and, and, and um, productive uh, point of view, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of seeing them, uh, you know, not denouncing um, some and, you know, or leaving it out. But it's, I, and, and I, because many people have, have gone that route, but uh, I, I find that quite interesting. And, um, so, so let, let's go over that 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 history um, that that you outline a bit. It, it, you talk about if I just take you know your your titles here. You have uh, the future we lost, the few who won, the god that failed, the third world revolution, and socialism, and America. So, what what's what's the kind of broad outline you see? Um, yeah. in, in that, I, I think part of it is to contextualize the successes and failures of different parts of the socialist movement, right? And not just think of it in a very narrow, moralistic sort of way. So um, obviously, I'm most excited about the accomplishments of states that within democracies, because I think political democracy is extremely important. Um, You had uh, movements that fought to organize... If if I could just pause here, because... um, because you know the word democracy is quite contested, and you know, I mean, North Korea calls itself a people's democracy, and China. So, do do you mean liberal democracy, or do you mean uh, is like I guess liberal yeah. democracy plus, or or is it? Uh, yeah, I, something I else? Never 
that way. I believe that that liberal democracy, liberal rights are extremely important and that modern democratic socialism, a real socialism, I think, uh, needs to involve the fusion of liberal rights with additional socialist rights. So um, by liberal rights, I'm referring to the right that we have as individuals to a free expression, to um, free speech, to um, these kind of negative uh, uh, freedoms, they're called. Um, and I think those need to be maintained. It's extremely important. You know, the, the government doesn't have a right um, to interfere with your, your life as an ordinary citizen unless you're doing something that interferes with with you know the rights of other people, or unless you're causing yourself ha- you know harm in a very serious way, you know we we criminalize suicide because we we want the ability for the state to intervene and get someone help, you know if, if they're if they're 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 you know attempting that right. So there are like limits, but in general, th- those are the freedoms. Now the question is whether, and also other freedoms too, like the freedom freedom to um, own your own house, automobile, you know your personal property. Now. Where the part of liberal rights that I would contest is the right to what's called private property. So do you have a right to run a business with 100 employees and to, um, you know, pay their, those employees a wage, of course, that they, they, they agree to, but do, do you have a right to treat your business as if you would treat your 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 personal property or should those rights be curtailed curtailed by having a strong union curtailed by having state institutions or curtailed even more in the socialist direction by giving your individual workers the right to own stakes in their own workplaces and to run it democratically and to manage their workforces so for people who think that the the right to private property in the sense of of owning uh, large private businesses or owning uh, big apartment buildings and renting renting them out or whatever else is uh, the core liberal freedom that needs to be productive. Then, in that case, like no, I'm 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 not advocating for for um, that that liberal freedom, um, but I am advocating for uh, freedom for. Um, freedom of, 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 of individuals from the state um, in the sense of maintaining negative um, uh, freedoms, like the freedom of speech, organize, create political parties, um, create parties that advocate for all sorts of things, advocate for capitalism, advocate for monarchism, you know, whatever whatever you want to advocate for. I'm pretty much a, a free speech um, absolutist, unless it's a direct um, incitement to, to violence. You know, I think you should be able to, to, um, to say it. But the question is whether we should go beyond just having this form of political democracy and to struggle for something different. So in other words, I can't accept capitalism's conception of its economic realm as being free and private because the contracts are not being made among equals. You know, um, if you're the only... Um, um, you know, there, there's five businesses in town. I'm going to have to work for, for one of them because uh, if the choice is work or starve, right? And when I'm at that business, things become very zero sum between the rights of my employer and my own right. So, Kirk, if you own um, a shop and you're telling me, hey, um, I needed to work for uh, 12 hours a day for $10 an hour, now the a, a government came about. So a good a good new government comes about and it says, okay, we're going to limit the workday to eight hours, and we're going to mi- create a mandatory minimum wage of fifteen dollars. Right? That is an infringement on my on your freedom as a property owner, um, on your right to do what you will with your property, and create your own contracts with your workers. But it's an infringement that also creates more rights and freedoms for me as a worker, right? It gives me two, three, four extra hours a day that I can spend with my kids, right? It gives me um, an extra, you know, $20, $30 in my pocket 
every week that I could, um, you know, spend on whatever I want, right? It, it, in other words, um, enhances my my scope of of freedom. Um, so I, I think that on on a lot of these economic issues, uh, the freedom and autonomy end of it is zero sum, even if the actual economic production isn't zero sum. Right. right. Uh, it, let's just quickly. Uh, we, don't, we don't have to go into a lot of detail, but but your your historical and I guess global overview of the socialist movement is is interesting. Your 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 take on it, and I think um, you know I, I I'd like the audience to to hear it. You know, you start off with you know the social democrats in in Germany, and then you know and and. Of, Obviously, you'll talk. You, you know, you, you talk about the movements there um, in the nineteenth century, and then the emergence of Bolshevism and, and Soviet communism, and then you know Maoism, and um, and and you talk about American communism or, or socialism, let's say, uh, mm-hmm. and and you have a, a, you know specific um, evaluations and, and conclusions. Uh, for each that I think uh, that that I think is is worth um, uh, hearing, can you just um, briefly uh, outline yeah. that for us? Yeah, I would say that that I tried to avoid something simplistic, kind of as a as a good bad analysis of these things, and I tried to understand the contexts in which they emerge. So, when it comes to the Soviet experience, for instance, and the same is true of the Chinese experience too, um, these were communist governments that arose out of a desire to achieve certain developmental objectives, right? They, they, they were not highly developed, advanced, wealthy societies in which there was a socialist revolution among workers um, at a mass scale across the country. Uh, these were largely feudal societies or semi-feudal societies. In the Russian case and Chinese case, you have groups of highly organized workers but they're they're only in a few big cities. Um, but the vast majority of the countryside were just peasants and other and, and other people. So there wasn't really a firm basis for um, going from um, capitalism to the system after capitalism. And a lot of what those governments did in power was try to find a way to catch up with the West try to find a way to to overcome centuries and sec- centuries of underdevelopedness and, and, and backwardness. So the results were really mixed. Um, in China, we know about some of the horrors and the brutality and authoritarianism of the Chinese Communist Party. But what's not often discussed is the incredible um, increases in health outcomes that came from uh, being able to build a functioning uh, health system, the tremendous advantages in literacy, in the empowerment of women, in the um, abolition of, of, of many old forms of, of oppression. Uh, does that justify you know, the authoritarianism or anything else? Like, I, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think, think in those terms. I think it's kind of... Um, um, you know, I, I think people's rights and freedoms are their rights and, and freedoms and nothing can justify um, taking it away. But but again, these are systems that emerge in complex ways based on the conditions of the past, the regimes that they found um, and these groups of revolutionaries, um, you know, found. Um, so I, I try to, in the book, contextualize and explain how do these systems develop the way they they developed um, how do they start off as as movements of of groups of ideological socialists and end up somewhere very far removed from uh, my vision of, of socialism, the vision of most most socialists of, of socialism? But also, on the other hand, how, uh, I mentioned Sweden before, but in the case of these Nordic countries, how socialist parties were able to take power and they ended up with a system also far removed from my vision of socialism but it's a system that uh, are some of the most popular and effective you know on earth um, in modern uh, social democracies right um so i kind of wanted to again understand the history and give people a background about how these things came about um and this would be kind of the the past of the socialist movement but also explain why the dream of creating societies 
that are democratic and free and that, again, get to this core of providing cultural and economic necessities, food, housing, um, education, healthcare, childcare for, for ordinary people, um, that, that why this is still relevant and why it still captivates so many millions of people across the world. Could you explain um, what your criticism of Scandinavian socialism um, would be? Well, where does it, it fall short? I think it, it comes close to a vision of a just society, but it ultimately leaves too much power in the hands of private capitalists. So they could feel free to roll back and undermine um, key parts of the system that people like because they simply have the power to, um, to invest. Yeah, they, they, they have the um, a power to uh, tell people, you know, we're not going to um, to invest in this country anymore unless you roll back your labor rights, unless you accept lower lower wages um, and and whatever else. Whereas, I think and I, I believe that that everywhere we should strive to develop a conscious type of popular majority for a cooperatively run economy. And that, that economy can still be run on, on, on the market. You know, I'm not suggesting we should have a centrally planned system, but I think that ordinary people can collectively run their workforces. And instead of just getting a wage, people will be real owners in their, in their societies. Right. Now, um, in, in terms of your, your vision of, I suppose, the process of, of socialism emerging, uh, you are obviously not, uh, you know, like a mechanistic Marxist or anything like that. And, you know, and that, you know, um, that history moves, you know, in, in a sort of, you know, chain of historical necessity, um, you know, very much it, it appears, uh, that uh, you know, it's that that voluntarism, I suppose, if you want to put it that way, or subjectivity, choices, you know, so so that, you know, you know, so so that unlike you know the the kind of classic, you know, what what one might call vulgar Marxism, you know, that you know socialism is inevitable, it's going to happen, the working classes, you know, the contradictions of capitalism are going to force socialism to come about. Um, your, you, you have a, a, a different sort of view that it's not necessarily going to come about and, and it has to come about through conscious mobilization, action, convincing, etc. Et Am I right uh, in understanding yeah, yeah. what you're saying? And yeah, I, can uh, you explain it more? I would, I would take more of a, yeah, a Kantian approach, right? It's like, uh, it's not something that, that will be necessarily. It's something that ought to be. And, um, and I think that um, that it really has to be the decision of, of people who who live in these societies, and that they they feel like they they um, they aren't um, uh, true stakeholders in their their society. They they feel like the uh, concentrated economic power that a few people have is perverting uh, the rest of democracy and society. And they want to build a more uh, democratic society. They want to build a society in which um, in which they uh, can really feel like um, they're they're equal member of a of a community. Right, right. Because I like so. There, there are some questions that I'd I'd like to. Well, okay. F- even before I get to those questions, let me ask. This book was written in twenty nineteen. So that's pre-COVID, pre-Russia, Ukraine, <laughs> um, uh, you know, the NATO, etc. You know, and many on the left, you know, are you know supporting NATO. Others on the left are not supporting NATO, uh, and and many on the left supported the you know the the sort of I would say you know big government heavy-handedness with with COVID, etc. And, and uh, others were against it. Um, w- w- what you know? What's your view, and and uh, and have those developments changed, uh, or, or or would you have written the book differently if you wrote it now because of of those things, or or do you still yeah. uh, does everything still stand? I think everything still stands in broad strokes, and of of course, um, 
with Ukraine, um, I, as I think most most people around the world, should support uh, the right of Ukraine to defend themselves against an offensive war. Um, you know, this war was really um, Putin's uh, war of Putin's choosing, and it's a war that he could end uh, tomorrow. Um, and and you know, I, I think that's that's important to say. At the same time, you know, I think NATO is a defensive alliance, allegedly, that seems to make war more likely and not less likely. Um, so, so I think NATO expansion, some of the things that happened in the, the, the 1990s and, and, and the lead up to this, this conflict, uh, was a big mistake. And it made war more likely than not um, uh, likely. And um, it, it, there was a terrible missed opportunity, I think, we, we had for peace in our time um, in the 1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union and, um, and the enlargement of NATO to include the Baltic states. Um, uh, and uh, it created enough of a pretext for, for Putin's um, invasion, which I think, again, has no justification. Um, but, but I guess I'm both anti-NATO and anti-Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, while at the same time recognizing the obvious, which is that you know Ukraine needs aid and support um, at this at this time. Um, when it comes to COVID, you know this is really a a question that varies country by country, um, and public health situation by public health situation. Um, at a certain point, the lockdowns. Uh, became uh, very costly. And I think costly in ways that people didn't fully understand. Costly the development of the, the education of young children. Um, uh, costly in, in, in all, all sense in terms of a mental health crisis. Uh, costly for um, for women in, in, um, and children in abusive uh, domestic violence situations or whatever whatever else, the kids not being able to, to see teachers and social workers so that they could find out what's going on and, and whatever else. And, and it really meant the shutting down of not just um, many businesses that employ people, but also the mechanisms of social service delivery in a lot of places got, got harder. Um, then again, I think at a, a certain acute moment, um, rolling lockdowns and 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 stay-at-home orders and and quarantines or whatever else um you know were were justified right so uh you just have to figure out what cost what's the cost and figure out what what the penalty is and then get the public involved in the decision making so they feel a stake in it um if it just seems like a few technocrats are making all these decisions um then i think people feel alienated uh, from it. So I, th- I think it really varies uh, place by place, situation by situation. Um, I think in general, um, you know, I'm, I'm wary about, um, about people just celebrating the lockdown and, and being very silly looking at the COVID numbers. Of course, I was very concerned about COVID, uh, but not thinking about the wider um, impact this had on people. Right, right. Uh, I, there, there's a lot that um, I find uh, interesting about your book, and it, it, it's kind of like a, a parallel and, and, and a, sh- a sort of shifted timeline for myself, me being a, a bit older than you. And um, I, I, for many years, I've you know identified strongly with the left. Right now, I, I, I sort of can't. I, there's a lot I still have sympathy with, but I, I think I've kind of... Uh, gone beyond right and left, but 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 in in my own life, growing up in the in the eighties and nineties and so forth, so like the during the Cold War when the Soviet Union was around, um, you know the, the the kind of questions I suppose Western leftists had was um, you know well the, there was a third world questions, and then there uh, and and the place of the third world in Marxism, and then there's the other thing about Soviet Union. Where do you stand in the Soviet Union? Uh, you know, uh, uh, and and so so those were questions that had to be grappled with. Then after the fall of the Soviet Union, it was like a huge crisis of the left. What does the left stand for? Is is was the fall of the Soviet Union a, a whole repudiation of the left? And I remember, for example, like 
Mickey Carlson's book um, and the end of equality. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but but basically, like he was advocating for the Democrats, which they basically did, abandon the idea of equality because it's kind of forced utopianism was kind of Soviet and central planning, and but then that led to sort of neoliberalism, neocon, liberal imperialism, all this kind of stuff, and um, you know, and 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 now you. Coming from uh, you know a, a later generation, and then like I guess during the Iraq uh, War, and then I guess Occupy uh, Wall Street uh, was I, I'm assuming those were, were sort of big things uh, in in your uh, personal development and outlook there. I mean, well, in, in looking at all these questions, well, one thing I I find quite um, I would say disturbing in 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 the development of of the left, which I'd like to hear your opinion on. I think that that the left, in a sense, has abandoned the working class, and and I mean, I, I know the new left theoretically explicitly did so in many ways. They kind of gave up on the working class. They didn't have class consciousness, and so looked for other subjects. And then you had like black Marxism and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, and, and so that, you know, much of the working classes, particularly in the developed countries, um, you know, would then, you know, you would gravitate towards, you know, populism or Reagan or Thatcher in the 80s, you know, then Trump and MAGA right now. And there's this very interesting movement of MAGA communism I've seen trending and stuff like that. These communists, you know, going to, to the working class and, and embracing them where they are. So there's that, whereas, you know, what what people have identified as as socialism has been you know university students almost in this you know and 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 uh, uh, and that kind of divide there I mean that I, I suppose that that's one um, big area and I suppose another thing is I am so I am still floored by the way that the the kind of left has you know, all of a sudden embraced the CIA and FBI, <laughs> which, I mean, they were always uh, the, the enemy. And, and it's, it's kind of like this institutional establishmentism of, of the contemporary left has, has left me quite baffled. And um, so I, I'd, I'd really appreciate your insights in, into those things which I've observed and, you know, and, and as you try, you know, writing on, on building a, a, a socialism for the 21st century, I'd like to hear what your comments are. Yeah, I mean, I think to begin with, there is a disconnect between the organized left and the working class that has grown since the 1970s. Um, and I think that's the primary challenge for anyone organizing uh, socialists or or other types of organizing right now is how do you embed yourself in the the working class? How do you reverse the dealignment of working class politics from egalitarian politics? It was just taken for granted for a hundred plus years that yeah, if people have less money, less power, um, they're going to vote for the party advocating more redistribution. You know, it was just kind of common sense. But as politics have become more and more polarized around cultural issues, as the left has lost its roots among the working class, um, I think you're, you know, we're, we're seeing a very dangerous uh, sort of um, turn of politics towards um, these cultural questions, um, as opposed to um, politics being built on the broadest basis possible. And obviously, different countries have their own variants um, of this, like, obviously, you know, in, in Trinidad, one of the, the challenges has always been, how do you build united sort of class politics so people see their interests um, um, as, as being, you know, common between working class people, regardless of their their um, ethnic ethnic background and kind of by the communalism. Because, of course, you know, the elites, the elites from both, you know, Indo-Trindadian and Afro-Trindadian communities like are, are, are um, have very different lives um, together far more similar to each other in terms of their their lifestyles, their their uh, interests uh, than than the working class and the, the the poor. But but these are things that that mass politics, left wing politics, is meant to overcome. And so many of the struggles um, of the past um, past decades have been about overcoming that. But it it does seem like that's that's its own variation of this kind of 
disconnect from the rootedness of our politics in, in uh, a working class uh, subject. And when it comes to the institutionalism question, I think it is true that American Democrats, liberals definitely were, were much more um, into um, the FBI and other sorts, sorts of um, sorts of things. They were very happy that the FBI was getting more LGBT friendly or whatever. The CIA was, was, was doing more diverse recruitment. But uh, the left itself, the institutional left, I think is very far apart from that. The main problem, though, is we're, we're a college-educated bunch disproportionately, right? And we need to take the left away from academia and bring it back to where it uh, belongs, which is on the shop floor of firms, um, you know, and and in in community meetings and 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 all sorts of um, uh, churches and and all sorts of other places where um, where I think it 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 belongs, you know, rooted in the daily lives of of ordinary people, because that's what our politics is about, and that's what. But I think any politics, um, you know, worth a damn, should be about, which is improving the lives of ordinary people and the belief, the fundamental belief that, um, well, CLR James was maybe um, saying it a bit too extreme when he was summoning uh, Marx and saying that, you know, every cook um, govern. Yeah. Should, should, should govern. But, uh, you know, if not govern, every cook should have a vote. vote. <laughs> and a, and, and, uh, and a, a vote means not just a vote in the ballot box every, every, um, you know, five years. years. Yeah, exactly. And, and that was, you know, I think that there's been plenty of experiments, you know, around the world to that, that end. Some of them have ended uh, well, some of them poorly, but there's a lot we could, we could learn. Actually, my next book that I'm, I'm finishing up now is the history of the Grenadian uh, revolution. Oh, wow. Um, which, yeah, a subject I'm always interested in. Um, and I got a chance to interview um, lots of people on both sides of, of, of that to really get a much richer understanding of, 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 of what, what happened, but also, uh, kind of the hopes that it, that it, um, that, that arose. Um, Ooh, that, arose. that's, yeah, that's excellent. I, I, that was actually, I was going to close off with asking, you know, about any projects you're working on right now. When's that going to be published? So I'm at my last stages of writing it. I have been at my last stages for about eight months though. So <laughs> I gotta, I gotta wrap it up, but I, I think I could finish, uh, by, by the end of next month, and hopefully it'll be out in fall 2023 with Versa. Did you speak to Brian Meeks at all? Yes, yes, I have yeah. spoke to Brian Meeks, um, and he actually agreed to do a little forward to the to the book. Uh, I spoke with a, a bunch of people, um, but especially uh, kind of a controversial figure that that I, I hope to add some more complexity to, which is uh, Bernard uh, Cord. The, the deputy um, uh, prime minister, and then uh, for for a time, and also kind of the uh, economic, um, you know, thinker behind some of the interesting kind of mixed economy parts of that 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 project in in um, in Grenada. And and again, I think a lot of these these projects, when they fail, they could demoralize people and think that hey, any attempt to make a more equal, more just world is going to end in failure. But I think we need to just look structurally and seriously about, okay, how could this have been better? Could you have combined this push for more economic democracy and more development with a, uh, you know, a system that, that had true political democracy, right? That had avenues to resolving disputes um, in, in more traditional liberal democratic norms. And I think if you talk to all these survivors, you know, that's, that's what they say. They say, you know, our big mistake was this, not what we were trying to do economically. Yeah. Their, their economy actually worked. Um, not, not, not their big construction project that, you know, the U S lied and pretended was a, was a MIG fighter base, you know, (laughs) even though everybody, including the British intelligence, uh, were telling them that it was, it was for civilian use. It's like WMD in 1983. Yeah. Yeah. And I, to to the credit of, 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 you know, Trinidad, you know, Trinidad did not participate in the, the, you know, and, and, and I think it's one of the great shames that, that that crisis could have been brought to an end, um, you know, in a different way. And, you know, it doesn't, doesn't sound like much in the context of American invasions, but we know there's, you know, several hundred people, um, you know, including a couple dozen Americans, yeah, but, but, but many hundreds of, of Caribbean people that, that would be, would be alive today, if not for, um, 
you know, if not for uh, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, j just as an aside, I mean, I, I, I studied in Jamaica with many people who were involved in the Grenadian Revolution in 1992. So, um, yeah, that's a very interesting thing. Maybe we can talk offline about that. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I know you have to go and I've kept you a bit over uh, your time. Um, there's a, I mean, that is so so we definitely look forward to, to that, um, to that project. And uh, I, and I, I suppose uh, the uh, what I could ask you to do to sum up is, is basically what is the message that you'd like to leave your readers with, um, you know, with after they read um, your socialist manifesto? Uh, well, I think the main message is this, that socialism is a living tradition uh, and that uh, we all deserve to live in a world um, in which uh, we don't have the exploitation of person by person and in which we have the confidence to know that um, that um, that all of our our descendants and, and 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 all the people in our in our community will have the um, chance to live uh, rich and fulfilling lives and we have geniuses. We have our Einsteins, our, our uh, Leonardo da Vinci's. We have all sorts of people with extraordinary abilities and talents that are spending their days in sweatshops or laboring in fields and don't have the type of opportunities that that, that uh, in this rich, abundant world uh, they should have. Well, thanks very much for this interview. It's really been informative and enjoyable. Great. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, and yes, I'll definitely be in touch with, with, with you. Once again, the book is The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. And we've been speaking to the author, Bhaskar Sankara. It's been a pleasure. And also thanks to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.